Well, good morning again. My name is Sean, the lead pastor here. And if you're uh, one of our honored guests here this morning, we're so glad you're here. If you would like, you can turn to the back cover of your order of worship there. And this QR code right there, if you'll scan that, that'll give you an opportunity to connect with us. If you'd like to find out more information about our church, or perhaps you'd like to have coffee with me or a staff person, uh, that's how you do that. We also have information back there at our welcome table, the dark wall in the foyer. You can find out more information about our church there as well. And today what we're going to be doing is we're continuing our walk through the New Testament letter uh, to the church at Colossae, commonly called Colossians. Uh, the passage today is found on page 10 in your order of worship. And on the chair Bible there, the, uh, the black Bible there in front of you, it's found, found on page 924 in that Bible. And especially for our guests this morning, if you don't have a Bible at home, please take that Bible there with you. We would love for you to have that um, as our gift to you. Before we jump into this passage today, I kind of want to just, I've been struggling with how to say this all week, and it's kind of hard to say, and so I'm just going to have to just get out with it. Some of you have walked into this room today knowing that you believe in Jesus, and some of you who know that are going to walk out today wondering if you really do believe in Jesus, because today... Paul is going to lay before us a very challenging passage about the Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of the reasons I had Mike kind of reach back into some older uh, modern songs. It's new to us, but it's old enough to vote, that song indescribable that we just sang, to kind of get our minds wrapped around this Jesus we're going to look at today. Because we're going to see a crazy description about Jesus. That's really the only adequate word, crazy because either Christians are crazy to believe this about Jesus, or he really is this indescribable person. So with that, I invite you now to turn to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Again, page 10 in your order of worship, page 924 in the chair Bible there. <clears throat> this is God's word. He, being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, oh, this is God's word. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, as we come before your word this morning, I ask especially, Lord, that you would challenge those of us who believe that we already know your Son, our Lord Jesus. I pray, Lord, that where we have domesticated him, tamed him, made him very easy and believable, that you would shake us this morning that you would afflict us in our comfort as you comfort the afflicted, Lord. 
I pray that we would see Jesus as he is in his glory as you present in this passage. We pray, Lord, for the rest of us who may not know you, we pray that you would show us Jesus in his beauty and that we would long for this Jesus, Father. Lord, do your work by your Spirit to open this text up to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is our series in the book of Colossians, and just to kind of get us in the mindset. So Colossae was a very small town outside of Ephesus. It was a has-been crossroads town, smallest town Paul ever wrote a letter to, smallest church, little church there in this little town. But Paul gets a visit from their pastor, and he gets this report of some really disturbing things taking place in this congregation. Specifically, some false teachers had come in, and they began to denigrate Jesus somehow, teaching that Jesus wasn't enough, the gospel they had received from their pastor was inadequate and incomplete, and they needed some more revelation. They had to get some skin in the game. They had to do some stuff in addition to Jesus to really know God, to really be in a relationship Now, we don't know exactly what the Colossian heresy is. In fact, if you're ever bored and you want to just have a little bit of, I don't know, I don't want to say fun because that would be lying, whatever it is to fill up some empty time, you can Google the Colossian heresy and you will see generations of PhD theses, dissertations, whatever, of people trying to figure out what this thing is because we don't know. What we do know is we see the emphases that Paul has at different moments in this book where he's really laying into a hard truth, probably to counter one of the teaching tenets of these false teachers. And so today he's going to really lay into one and we're going to see that Jesus is the authoritative, strong, scary, spiritual, and political ruler of all things. It's a pretty big claim. And to remind ourselves of what's going on, to kind of unplug ourselves from our culture and plug ourselves back into a first century Roman culture, was what to remind you about what was rising at this time was empire worship. They always had this kind of pagan spirituality where there were water spirits and wind spirits and forests were full of nymphs and dryads and stuff. But then added to that was this miracle of the Roman Empire where the first time you had a broad swath of humanity that had basic law and order. Unheard of in human history to this point. They saw it as a miracle and they began to see that supernatural blessings had obviously come to them through the Caesars. So they didn't think that Caesar was God, but they did begin to worship Caesar as a conduit to supernatural powers. There was an official imperial cult, there were shrines, there were temples in every major city. It was part of their culture, this kind of worship. So Paul is writing to people who are in a popular culture that has political assumptions and religious assumptions that make biblical Christianity a little challenging. We can probably relate And what he wants us to see is that the Jesus of verses 15 through 20 can save you, whereas the Jesus of the false teachers cannot. And that gets us to our theme for today. What we're going to orbit around today is this. Jesus is either iconic or absurd, but he's never ordinary. And what I pray that you hear today, especially those of you who are very familiar with Jesus, what I pray you hear today is that Jesus is iconic because he's large and he's in charge for you. 
Well, let's just jump right in. So Jesus is iconic. Verse 15 begins, it says that he is the image of the invisible God. That word for image there is actually the Greek word ikonos, from which we get icon or iconic. They used it as you pulled out a coin, you saw Caesar's image on there, that was the icon of Caesar. I found this interesting, they also had for the upper class of Rome, files in the city council chambers or whatever you call them, in every major Roman city, there was a little file on every member of the aristocracy basically laying out their creditworthiness, their financial capacity, and what kind of debts they had. That was called their icon. In other words, Paul comes to that culture and says, hey, Jesus is God's credit report. And forget the whole 850, Jesus is beyond perfection. He is like the ultimate picture of God. Okay, maybe that's not tracking with you because some of you are like, I don't want to think about my credit report right now. Thank you very much. Okay, let's do this one. You pull out your smartphone and you want to activate one of those apps. What do you touch? What's it called? Exactly. It's called a It's called an icon, people, right? You tap the icon and it opens up the program. That's what the New Testament says Jesus is. He is the icon of God. If you want to get to God, it's through Jesus. Boys and girls, I really want you to understand this. Let's take out your translation there on page 10. And let's look at your verse 15. Here's how I put it for you. Jesus is so important. When you click on him, God opens up. That's what Paul is telling us here. That's how important Jesus is. You want to know God? Click on Jesus. And notice what kind of God it is. It's the invisible God. The only way to see God is through Jesus. Against the financial, financial, the false teachers who were coming in and were saying, well, the real way to get to God, the only way to see this God is it's Jesus plus this other stuff we're adding. Jesus isn't enough. You gotta do more. And Paul says, no, he's the only icon of the invisible God. Interact with him to know God only. Because Jesus is the icon of God. He's either iconic or absurd, but he's never ordinary. And the next thing he shows us is that Jesus is in charge. Verse 15 continues, says, he is the firstborn of all creation. Not that he's born into creation or created. This is a term that we had about until about 100 years ago, and all of human history has had. The firstborn son is the most important after the father. He's, the, he's in charge of the family, he gets all the inheritance, he makes all the decisions. Okay, we had this too, if you remember about 10 years ago that show that broke like white suburbia, remember Downton Abbey, right? Remember the whole first season, what's the whole plot point? The firstborn son died, they're gonna lose everything because the law says he gets it. That's the same thing here. So Paul is telling that culture and ours, Jesus, has preeminent rank over all creation. He is the firstborn. He is in charge. And notice if you want to, you can circle that phrase, all things or everything, seven times in these short five verses. There's nothing over which Jesus is not in charge. And we land on verse 16. Look at verse 16. What does he say? He says, for by him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Do you get how crazy that is? We're talking, Paul is writing this barely 30 years after this man 
was crucified as an insurgent criminal on a humiliating cross. Barely 30 years after that event, the church has as a foundation that Jesus created all things, He rules all things, He owns all things. It's crazy unless it's true. See, instead of going after these false teachers line by line, what Paul is doing is he's showing off the beauty and authority of Jesus and saying, look to him, not this impoverished paucity of a picture that they're showing you. Look at the biblical Jesus. Because see, the Bible does not claim that Jesus is merely a good teacher to be followed. Yeah, I get why they do this. It's been very popular in, in, in Christianity in the last 10, 15 years to, to not say you're a Christian, but to say you're a Christ follower. I get the emotions behind it, what they're trying to evoke, but it's not really complete. That's not what the Bible pictures. The Bible does not say Jesus is this person you should follow. The Bible claims that Jesus is the iconic creator and ruler of all things. And if you don't believe that about Jesus, don't deceive yourself. You do not hold to what anybody in the New Testament would call Christianity. But the good news is you can repent right now and place your faith and trust in the biblical Jesus as the resurrected Lord. You can do that right now. Back to verse 16. Those delineations he talked about there, heaven and earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions, rulers and authorities, we read that as kind of like poetic embellishments, right? Kind of making some artsy language to really get to the emotion. But to them, those were specific things in first century Roman culture. Remember, in a way that you and I as, as struggling materialists, we tend to separate the world of spiritual and practical. They didn't do that. It was very integrated for them. We, we, you can see this in the usage of the word Lord. Lord to us, after 2,000 years of the New Testament, Lord is a religious term, right? To them, it was a political term, and it literally translates master. So a good Roman said, Caesar is Lord. A good Christian said, "Mm, no, Jesus is Lord. And it was a political and religious claim. And those two phrases backed up two clashing worldviews and those two clashing worldviews is what led to Roman persecution of the church and Paul jumps right into that worldview clash here with these heaven and earth visible invisible thrones and dominions rulers and authorities because religious wise you and I again as materialists we look up at the night sky and we see stars and we may be moved to beauty and think they're, they're pretty and stuff. But essentially, we look up and we see emptiness, right? Space is a vacuum. They looked up and they just knew. The same way you know the sun will rise tomorrow, they knew that there was an unseen world teeming with life. Just flooded with life that influenced them. They just knew it. Remember Greek mythology, all those gods who lived on Mount Olympus and were responsible for things? Well, the Romans conquered Greece, stole their gods, renamed them, and then popularized them across the Roman Empire. So you, if you had something going on in your life, you would go to one of these gods, jump through their hoops, manipulate them in other words, and they would bless your life. And they saw all these gods as being in different layers, that heaven and earth were affected by things that were visible and invisible, that there were thrones and there were dominions and there were rulers and authorities, and they had to tap into those to have a good life. Paul, in verse 16, looks at that 
pantheon that they have and says, Jesus Christ is the ruler of all that. He doesn't go line for line and saying, that's a false God, and that's a false God. He just says, Jesus is ruling over all of that. And then in the religious, or the political realm, these original readers would immediately think of imperial power, of thrones, of imperial courts, of the emperor himself at the top of it, and they would read that and say, oh, Paul says Jesus is over the realm of politics too. In verse 16, Paul is basically saying Jesus Christ rules over whatever the supernatural realm looks like, and he rules over the political realm too. He is absolutely in charge. And then in verse 18, it gets even more specific. He says, Jesus is the beginning, the origin, the head. It's actually the same word as ruler in verse 16. Same exact word. In other words, he says, Jesus is the ruler of it all. This is crazy, isn't it? I mean, this man, is he just a guy? What kind of crazy claims are these? You see, Christianity, when you really look at what it claims about Jesus, it's absurd unless it's true. Because Jesus is either iconic or he's absurd, but he's not ordinary. All right, I want to make sure we get into this before we move on to the next point. So, you know, the Bible is a real book written to real people in real situations. And so we have to make sure we understand the world of the Colossians before we can really understand it to us. And very often it's very easy for us to skip over 2,000 years and act like it's written directly to us. I know, it's not. It's written to them. We need to understand it and then apply that to us. And so I want to make sure we understand their world, okay? I want to go back to the whole idea of the, the empire cult. Again, they didn't think Caesar was God, okay? They're not that, they just, they would not do that, Okay. They understood that. He was just a man. But he was the conduit of supernatural blessings. And so they had this official empire cult. And I want you to understand how significant this was. I want to put up on the slide here some phrases from the Roman Empire, from the empire cult. Caesar was equal to the beginning of all things. It was he who restored order and was the beginning of life and vitality. Caesar was the savior who had set all things in order as God manifests. These are actual inscriptions found in the Roman Empire. And there's a source if you want to look it up. And I'll point out it's written by a German and the title's in Latin so you know it's a really good source, okay? So, okay, okay. all joking aside, it's actually a pretty good source, okay? Do you recognize some words and phrases in there? Do they sound a little familiar? See, Paul's word choice here in verses 15 through 19 is he's grabbing stuff from this empire cult and saying, no, it's not Caesar, it's Jesus, Obviously, whatever was going on, these false teachers came in and they were somehow trying to sync up worship of the state and of the government and of status quo politics with biblical, and they were trying to create something else. Like, you can tap into supernatural power with Jesus and through some of this state stuff to have a really good life. And instead of going after it line by line, Paul steps back and says, no, I want to show off the power, beauty, and authority of Jesus because that's how you deal with spiritual and political commitments, the subtle background beliefs that make up a culture that challenge our faith. This is how you do it. Let me make this really personal. So I became a Christian early 1990s, probably somewhere around 1991. I experienced, I guess, for lack of a better word, a call to the ministry in the mid-90s. 
I graduated from seminary in 2000. So the 90s were like my like, you know, matriculation into Christianity. Like if you want your kids, like parents, like, oh, please, I pray for my son. Well, I was what they prayed for at the beginning in 1991, and I graduated into ministry. Like, yes, my parents were like, score, we did it, right? Okay, and here is what I knew being a 1990s Christian. I knew that when Jesus talked about an abundant life, yeah, there was some spiritual, spiritual stuff in there, but really it was just baptized Reaganomics, right? Low taxes, traditional morality, rising affluence. I, I knew that's what he meant. I knew, I mean, I knew because Bill Clinton was president, a Democrat, there was spiritual evil in the White House, and if we didn't get the right people elected, God was gonna curse our country. I knew it. I had heard so many sermons about those things, so many sermons about traditional morality, about sin, about the death of Jesus. I can't remember hearing much about the resurrection, even on Easter. And we never talked about the glory and beauty of Jesus himself as a person. That never came up. It wasn't until I started reading these dead guys obsessed with the beauty of Jesus, we call them Puritans, that I started to kind of get this more diagnostic look at my Christianity, and I realized that I had synced up my culture's religious and political assumptions with Christianity and kind of came up with this thing that was very anemic and very weak and frankly very unfulfilling because the Jesus of Scripture is so much better. And biblical Christianity is so much better. And that is precisely what Paul is doing in verses 15 through 20. He wants you to see that, no, don't sync up your spiritual and political aspirations for a good life with Christianity. He shows us that instead Jesus is iconic. Jesus is in charge. And now he shows us that Jesus is large. Back in verse 16, Paul says, Jesus is the one who created all things. Did you catch that? Paul, the former rabbi, the former Pharisee, turns to his Bible, goes to Genesis 1-1 where it says, in the beginning God created heaven and earth, and he has the audacity to go, y'all, that's Jesus. This is why in the book of Acts, every time Paul spoke at a synagogue, his religious peers picked up rocks and threw them at his forehead. Because you can't say that about Jesus. He's just a man. He can't be the creator God of the Old Testament. That's crazy. Unless it's true. He goes on to say in verse 17 that in Jesus all things hold together in direct opposition to the imperial cult saying the Caesars set all things in order. No, Jesus is bigger than Caesar. See what he's saying to these struggling Christians in some sort of weird syncretism, false religion. He's saying, forget all the spiritual realities you think you have to manipulate to have a good life. Jesus literally holds it all together. Jesus is enough. He is sufficient. He, is a, he can bring you to God. Whatever the false teachers are peddling to you that say Jesus isn't enough, Paul basically says, how can this Jesus not be enough unless you don't believe in this Jesus? Unless you have a tame, domesticated Jesus. And then in verse 18, he says, Jesus is preeminent in everything. 
the highest rank, the one holding the most important place, the one who leads from the front. And then we land on verse 19. Look at me at verse 19. It says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The word of God is not in the original Greek text. A very rigid translation leaving the original word order is in him it pleased all the fullness to dwell. Which is weird. Here's what's going on. Fullness is a proper name to them in a way that it isn't to us. It actually means something to them. Okay, let me get you there. So stick with me. This is going to get a little thick, but it's worth it, I promise, okay? So remember all those layers of things we saw in verse 16, rulers and authorities, powers and dominions, heaven and earth, all those things. Well, so that was the spiritual world to them. And they believed that to get through those layers, the purpose of the layers of that spiritual world was above that was the ultimate final layer, the layer of perfection. And you had to get through these gatekeeping spirits to get to that layer. And when you did, you got access to that power and that power of perfection, that power of the ideal would then flood itself into your life. Now, I know that sounds weird, but here's how, how that came about. I should probably have a Veritas person up here, but you're going to have to deal with me. Sorry. Okay, so remember Socrates, Plato, Aristotle? Does that sound familiar at all? Right? This means yes, okay? Those of you who are Princess Brides fans, I really tempted to say morons at this point, but anyway. <laughs> sorry, it's a movie joke. You have to see the movie to understand. So anyway, so Plato said that the world we live in is just a world of shadow, that there is an ultimate ideal world, that's reality, that's the ideal, and basically he won. His ideas kind of laid the foundation for classical culture, and so they were in that mentality looking, to in, we live in this shadow world, we want access to the real world, so we gotta jump through all these hoops. Any guess as to what they named that higher ideal world? The fullness, yes. So Paul comes to them and says, Scripture says Plato is not completely wrong. There is a perfect, ideal world full of power that can change your life, and it lives in, is manifest in, is personified and incarnate in Jesus Christ himself. Everything they hoped for out of life Everything that they wanted, spiritual and practical, by accessing that world is available to them in Jesus. I tried to grab this Roman perspective in the kids' translation. Let's, look, let's all look at verse 19 of the kids' translation. Here's what he's trying to say. He's saying, all our hopes and dreams live in him. Oh, boys and girls, that's the biblical Jesus, that all your hopes and dreams for your life live in him. What a huge claim and it kind of sounds silly and over the top, doesn't it? Unless it's true. Jesus is iconic. He's large. He's in charge. He is enough. These false teachers coming in trying to get you to put your hopes and your dreams in something other than Jesus are deceiving you because Jesus is either iconic or he's absurd. But he's never ordinary. Maybe all this religious and political and Greek philosophy stuff, you're like, please, yawn fest. Let me try to bring this into our world, okay? I really want you to get your minds wrapped around this. So here's, when we look at this picture of Jesus, here's what we Christians have to ask ourselves. Where have we wedded the religious and political spirit of our age with our faith? 
and we've been more motivated by that spirit than by the glory of Jesus? That's the question to ask. It is not my job to talk about politics. And so I'm going to dip one little toe in it. I'm going to ask that you give me grace as I do. I care a little, not much. I'm not, I'm not, just to be candid, I care a little bit about who is and who will be president. Don't think it matters that much to be candid, but that's a different conversation. And I pray to that end. I pray for the current and future president. I pray just like you do that the policies of this person will make my life easier and more financially stable and successful. Same thing you pray. And I always end my prayer for the president, present and future with, but Lord, do what is best for your church. Because like all countries, America has come and America may go, but the church will endure because of the indescribable person of Jesus that we see in verses 15 through 20. And so I pray that because I want the Lord to keep my heart on his mission for his beloved church instead of me being tempted to be on my mission for my beloved country. Because Jesus is greater than the cultural powers of ancient Rome and he's greater than the cultural powers of the United States of America. Jesus is iconic. He's large. He's in charge. And Jesus is for you. Verse 18, Paul tells us that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He's the sovereign source of the church is what he's telling us. These false teachers trying to separate you from Jesus are really trying to decapitate you. They're as helpful as a doctor who prescribes decapitation for the sniffles. Okay, not very because he's the head. Even more, he says, Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, pointing to the resurrection of Jesus and promising that one day, someday, he will lead out an entire horde of resurrected people. It's such an amazing promise of this amazing Jesus, and it's based upon the reality of who he is and what he's done. And so he lands and concludes on verse 20. Look with me at verse 20. Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. God was pleased to reconcile by making peace. It sounds so amazing, but that, that nice language kind of covers up some scary realities. He had to, we had to be reconciled to him by the blood of his cross, he says. See, we were God's enemies. We were God's enemies, but the cross shows that there's no limit to the lengths that Jesus will go through to reconcile his enemies back to himself. See, reconciliation for us came about at the price of Christ's agony. This incredible person we have seen in verses 15 through 19, his very life was dragged out of him as the only way to give us life. How dare these false teachers denigrate this Jesus and teach he's not enough? Because Jesus is either iconic or absurd. He's never ordinary. All right, let's wrap this up. Here's the point. If you don't get anything else, here's the point. This powerful, incredible Jesus, the icon of God, the creator of all things, the source of all things, the ruler of all things, the owner of all things, set aside all of that, letting himself be killed 
so he can offer to you reconciliation and forgiveness. Then he was raised to new life, the firstborn of those who place our faith and trust in him as the resurrected Lord. You can know this Jesus even now. I'll lay aside everything you think you know about Christianity, everything you've called religion, and just place your simple faith and trust in this iconic Jesus, the resurrected Lord. In other words, to know this Jesus, repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come before a challenging text like this, we pray that you would disrupt us, especially those of us who know you. Lord, I know I have domesticated and tamed Jesus. He's very easy to define. He's very controllable. And he's not the Jesus of this passage when I pray to him and think of him. Lord, I know I'm not alone. Would you forgive us all for the idol we have created and called Jesus? And would you help us once again to place our faith and trust and worship on this Jesus as he is revealed? And Lord, I pray today for those who do not know you, I pray that this picture of the real Jesus would break hearts and draw people into his beauty. That as you have promised that as Jesus Christ is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. Would you do that now, Lord? Would you draw people to this Jesus that they might confess faith in him and believe so that your kingdom would come and your will would be done right here as it is in heaven? Pray that you would do this, Father, by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen.